I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, Nate Hedgie. Hey, Taylor. What's up? Question for you. What's your milk rating? My milk rating? Okay, so there's all these different milks. How do you rate them? Oh, what's my favorite milk? Uh, you know what I, milk I actually really like is the uh, lactose-free 2% milk. I think that's my favorite. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. It lasts a really long time, like three or four months. Oh. It's creamy without having like a ton of saturated fat because we have to watch out for that because of cholesterol levels in my household. It's pretty good. Do you, uh, do you F around with uh, plant-based milks at all? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I can get down with that. So here, here's the evolution of my milk, you know, drinking. So I started off, you know, drinking actual cow's milk as a kid, uh, preferably chocolate cow's milk. Mm-hmm, of course. And at some point, I think I went to rice milk mm-hmm. and then almond milk. Now I'm into oat milk. Oat milk is like my number one milk. Huh. Why? You know, it's, first of all, it's a great coffee creamer, which is like 95% of my milk intake. <laughs> right, same. Okay. And it's it's the most milky without whatever it comes from. So today's episode comes to us from the folks at The Europeans, a podcast that says it's about the politics and culture of Europe, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that doesn't quite describe all the interesting stuff they do. That includes their latest three-part series about, you guessed it, oat milk. We're going to be playing the first episode of what they call the Oatly Chronicles. I really like that name. (laughs) Me too. Uh, (laughs) If you dig it, I really recommend that you follow up and listen to the next couple of episodes, which we're going to link to in the show notes. We are going to skip past a little of the opening banter because we just did some of that ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as we launch right in, you're going to be hearing from hosts Katie and Dominic. And yeah, enjoy. Yes. Oat milk. Here at the Europeans, we've become a bit obsessed with the Swedish oat milk company Oatly, a brand that promises to bring the planet back from the brink. But is Oatly the great alternative that will save us? The more we've learned about them, the more we've realised that Oatly is a really interesting case study of what you might call 
green capitalism. But of course, the company's internal cell was that now we managed to turn big capital green. This is a three-part series, and it is a roller coaster journey. I mean, to me, it just felt opposite to what they had been doing up until that point. A journey from Sweden to China, Catalonia to the UK, spanning from the global food system to the housing crisis. There are two things we have to do. One is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. The other is to stop eating animals. If we don't do those two things, then we've got, I think, a relatively small chance of getting through this century and those that follow. We'll hear tales of shadowy investors, protest. There are no such things that the rich are just rich and stupid and have their funny lives on the yachts. Their investments affect our lives. And even multiple songs. This is a special mini-series funded by journalismfund.eu and the Alliance Foundation. Our producer and oat milk detective, Katz Laszlo, will be our guide on this journey. Hi, Katz. Hi, Dominic. So, Katz, you're the person who's to blame for getting us involved so deeply into green capitalism. I am. I realise that a three-part series about oat cappuccinos sounds completely ridiculous and very bougie. But I promise you, this is a very serious journalistic investigation. The stakes are high and it is really relevant to all of our lives. The story starts with me having an existential crisis in the supermarket. I had this day, which I suspect many listeners will have had, where I was standing in the milk aisle and I was looking at all of these options and thinking, my God, I want to shop ethically, but I just have no idea what I should be buying. Cow milk is the cheapest, uh, but it's super unsustainable. It uses a ton of land, animal welfare, antibiotics. Okay, what else do we have? Almond milk. Apparently that uses a bunch of water, causes forest fires. Okay, next up, cashew. It's got some kind of a labour issue with women in India burning their hands while picking them. Soy deforestation. And like, I report on climate. I have taught about climate. This is madness. Like, why is it so difficult? And then in the middle, a bombastically branded carton of Oatly. Ta-da! <laughs> and this was a moment where it felt like Oatly ads were everywhere. It's like milk. Lots of people met Oatly first through a rather strange Super Bowl ad. It's like milk, but made for humans. Wow, wow, no cow, no, no. The voice you're hearing is Tony Peterson, the CEO of Oatly at the time, and he is sitting in a field of oats singing criticism about the dairy industry. This ad got a big reaction, and weirdly, the main critique was that Tony is not a good enough singer. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And also, people thought it was a waste of money, because estimates say that a 30-second spot during the Super Bowl is $5.5 million. Whoa. $5.5 million. That's an investment in Tony's voice. <laughs> I know, but it worked. Everyone now knows what oat milk is. We've seen a really big shift in the U.S. where I live, for example. Oat milk wasn't even the thing that we knew about five years ago. 
This is Ashley Allen. She is Oatly's Chief Sustainability Officer. Oh, wow. So Oatly actually agreed to speak to you, Caps. They did, yeah. Sadly, our request to speak to Tony was declined. It's a shame. I would have really been up for giving Tony a free singing lesson in exchange (laughs) for an interview. But, well, this series is not about Tony singing. The big thing this ad did was spur on a big conversation. The zeitgeist around dairy has really shifted. Oatly can be a product for people at any stage in their journey. They don't only have to be vegan or vegetarian. We're now at an age where four euro oat lattes are, for better or worse, part of the furniture. But like I remember in the summer of 2020, there was all of a sudden all these prominent articles in the New York Times, in Hezbollah, Amsterdam's newspaper, about these great shortages of oat milk. They interviewed people who were like running around the city looking for it. I remember those oat milk shortages. Right. And like, I thought this is badness of all the things happening in the world. But also, man, people clearly really want to be able to buy more ethical products. Thing is, Oatly has actually existed since 1994. Oh, wow. Almost as long as you've been alive, Cat. <laughs> oh, scraping the barrel of reaction. <laughs> I'm one year older than Oatly. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, Oatly was an alternative for people with lactose intolerance. It's only branded itself as like a climate company since 2013. So back in the 90s, the company co-founder, Ricard Oster, was a scientist studying lactose intolerance. And he actually invented oat milk. Shut the front door. He invented oat milk. I know, it does sound a bit bad that like no humans ever made oat milk, especially because soy milk has been around for like 2,000 years. It's as old as Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Surely people have been making oat milk forever. I did actually find one obscure forum citing this like 19th century English text about vegetarians drinking oat milk out of principle. Huh. But Oatly does claim to be the inventors, and most of the internet agrees. Anyway, besides not containing lactose, oats are also a really sustainable crop. They grow quite far north, and the other good thing about them is they are incredibly cheap. Mm-hmm. So, Ricard and his brother Bjorn, they launched Oatly, the milk for the lactose intolerant. That's a pretty smart business move, because isn't like 70% of the planet lactose intolerant? It is a pretty massive proportion, isn't it? But this branding isn't actually what made them an international household name. In 2013, they decide to rebrand. That is also when Tony of Super Bowl fame became CEO. And the way Oatly puts it, they've always known that oat milk was way more sustainable than cow milk. But in 2013, the world was ready. People were thinking a lot more about climate change and a new version of Oatly was born. One that says, buy us, feel good about yourself, don't feel guilty. And are their claims true? Is oat milk much better for the planet? That is exactly what we want to answer today. And it's also certainly what made Oatly famous. It was only once they started taking out all of these ads and shifting gears that people really started to know who they were. Uh Ah, like with the Super Bowl ad. Yeah, and a lot more than that. Oatly started doing some, at the time, really innovative marketing things. So they were one of the first brands to start printing all this information about the carbon footprint on the side of the cartons. And they called for other brands to do the same especially dairy. And starting in its home country in Sweden, Oatly starts getting a lot more attention for all this campaigning it's been doing against Big Dairy. Big Dairy. (laughs) Big Dairy. (laughs) 
Yeah, this was a bold move because the dairy industry is powerful. Looking forward to learning more about our dairy overlords. Yes, we have many here in Europe. Europe is home to the biggest dairy companies in the world. Nestle, Lactalis, Danan, and their dairy product revenue specifically is in the 20 billion range. That is many billions. Yeah, and with that money comes a bunch of lobbying power. So over 50% of dairy farmers' income actually comes from EU subsidies. Wow. So what you're saying is that there would be a lot less dairy farmers without these subsidies. Yeah, there probably would be. And it's also why cow milk can be so cheap. So very quickly after Oatly's rebrand, the biggest dairy lobby in Sweden sues Oatly. This Swedish milk lobby, it's called LRF Mjölk. LRF Mjölk is the Swedish word for milk, Mjölk. Yeah, Mjölk. <laughs> I love that. I know, it is good. So LRF Mjolk sues Oatly specifically for its statement, it's like milk, but made for humans. And they argue that Oatly is giving cow milk a bad name with its ads. That must have been quite scary for Oatly, I can imagine, um, because big dairy, at least at that point, will have had much fancier lawyers than a, than a tiny little oat milk startup. Yes, they did. And Oatly lost the lawsuit, but the case got them a bunch of publicity. Oatly sales went up dramatically, and it got people talking about the impact that dairy has on the planet. People actually call it the start of the milk wars, and they are ongoing. The milk wars. The milk wars. The milk wars range from these legal battles to very sassy ads, like the Super Bowl song, or another really strange ad, it's in Swedish, and Tony the CEO is a taxi driver and in the back seat is a cow. Okay. <laughs> so this cow, it farts, and then Tony is like, You and your friends really fart a lot. You actually account for 7.1 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases per year. So they're goofy, but there is a seriousness to what they're saying. And then massive dairy companies like Arla, the big Swedish milk conglomerate, they launch their own ads, like this one, with a fist-punching fake milk that it calls pjölk. Pjölk, smakar det som mjölk. Pjölk. And a retaliation song. It's ironic that Arla now sell their own cartons of oat milk. Arla Pjolk. <laughs> so it sounds like Oatly took some legal hits at the beginning, but that they won some successes with their adverts because they actually had a point, right? To help us figure out how much truth there is to Oatly's big claims, I called up longtime climate journalist for The Guardian, George Monbiot. How essential is it that we stop eating animal products if we want to meet our climate goals? There are two things we have to do to prevent the collapse of Earth systems above any other things we need to do. One is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. The other is to stop eating animals. It is as simple as that. If we do those two things, then we've got a good chance of getting through the century and those that follow. If we don't do those two things, then we've got, I think, a relatively small chance of getting through this century and those that follow. Getting through the century? Oh, my God. I know. Um, George is pretty vocal on this front, but it is something a lot of scientists agree on. And it's even in the IPCC reports, those big UN climate reports connected to the Paris Agreement. I really, really wish that people knew that 
addressing food and fixing what's on our plate is as important, if not more important than solving for electric vehicles and renewable energy. I do not think people understand that. And the media does not reflect that. This is Sonali Figueras. She's a journalist and she writes about our food systems and is also the founder of an online magazine about food and climate called Green Queen. She was so passionate about this that you can actually hear her smacking the table. People think, oh, I should use a plastic straw and I should bring a reusable bag. And But overall, there's just not an understanding, even at policy making levels, at business levels. It's just not reflective of the percentage of greenhouse gas emissions that the food system is responsible for. So that's really the takeaway. It's, it's as simple as that. I don't think we can wrap our heads around Oatly and why we're talking about it for three episodes if we don't understand the magnitude of dairy's impact. Ugh, you're about to tell me things that I don't want to hear about cheese, aren't you, cats? It's not looking good for cheese, Katie. Mm. Now, I knew in broad strokes that dairy was concerning. I've sort of casually been calling myself Fleegan for a few years. Fleegan? That is ridiculous, cats. <laughs> Wait, what, what is Fleegan? Am I missing something? <laughs> flexibly vegan. Oh, flexibly <laughs> vegan. But reporting on this podcast gave me a chance to dig into it so much further, and it is not pretty. It would take a lot of time to really explain all of it, but to give you a sense, I made you guys a montage. Just what everyone wanted. A nice dairy horror sound bath. You're welcome. Problem number one. Farming animals uses a crazy amount of land. 26% of the surface of the planet is for grazing animals, largely cattle and sheep. To put that into perspective... All the building ever done in the world is about 1% of the planet's surface. Cats, is this also true for organic meat and organic dairy? Yeah, organic meat and dairy is more ethical in some important ways, but it does use more land. And that vast amount of land, all of which would otherwise have been wild ecosystems, much higher in carbon, much richer in wildlife, upon which the entire Earth system depends, that vast area of land produces just a tiny amount of our food. So if you look at the UK, for instance, very large areas of our uplands. There's one sheep per hectare, one sheep per two hectares. I mean, almost no production at all. And yet that's enough to make sure that the woods, including rainforests in the west of the country, can't come back. It's got a massive ratio of destruction to production. And there are similar issues all around the world. Problem number two, water pollution, largely because of all of the poop. To get your milk out of the cow, a whole lot of things have to happen. You're passing a great deal of feed through that cow. They have to be fed on feed imported, often from a long way away, soya from Brazil. The dung comes out the other end, and that dung has to be disposed of. With so much dung, plants and soil just can't absorb it, and so the nutrients wash straight into the river. By the way, this also happens with chickens and eggs and basically it can push your river over into complete ecocide. It just dies. Problem number three. Greenhouse gases, those cow farts that taxi driver Tony was talking about with his cow passenger, they're mostly methane, which is about 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Problems four to a million. Oh, God, you're not done. 
animal welfare and the many animals that are bred and then killed within the dairy industry. Here's Sonali again. The way that we're marketed a happy black and white spotted cow in a lush green field, it's what I call the happy cow myth. But now we are forcibly impregnating cows and keeping them pregnant the entire year and taking their calves away, which is very cruel. Antibiotic resistance. Cattle requires a lot of medication, so that means that we're developing superbug resistance and we're not able to use antibiotics for when we get sick. Maltreatment of people working in the big warehouses. I 100% feel that we need much more of a focus on workers. The exploitation happens on the extremely intensive, giant, more industrial setups. And finally, the political impacts of the power that these massive corporations hold in the dairy industry. We start from a position where almost the entire food chain is in the hands of big business. Extremely exploitative and concentrates wealth to a very great extent indeed. And of course, their economic power translates into political power. And, you know, there's a very, very dangerous situation for democracy. As well as for everything else. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So... I need to ask an intensely personal question here. Um, Does all of this mean that I have to stop eating cheese completely? Because I want to be a good person, but I would find that really difficult. I think dairy is really hard. I think that for so long we've been told it's good to be vegetarian. So this idea that you have to go further than that is hard. There are studies that show that certain types of cheese are a little bit addictive. I knew this wasn't my fault. It's due to the chemical composition of cheese that I have a problem. And you are most certainly not alone. 30 to 40% of Europeans say they're either vegetarian or they're trying to reduce their meat. Wow, that's quite a lot. Yeah, it is. But only 3% of Europeans are vegan. Hmm. And I'm wondering if there is anything to my Fliegen philosophy. Does it still have an impact if we reduce the amount of dairy we eat, even if we don't quit completely? Yeah, I I think it's fair to say, you know, that eliminating it is better than minimizing it, but reducing it better than not doing anything. (laughs) You know, you're not going to succeed with everyone, but as far as you can go in that direction, that would be great. Thanks. There was this big report published in 2019 in The Lancet that said that we need to eat a maximum of 70 kilos of dairy per person per year if we want to take care of the planet. A bit more than a kilo a week, so definitely not nothing. Okay, so I could continue enjoying 
The odd morsel of Gruyere and Roquefort. The odd morsel? You could eat a kilo of Gruyere. <laughs> a week! Large morsel. <laughs> um, but if we are going to cut our dairy consumption as a planet, it seems like we've got a lot of work to do here in Europe in particular, right? Because we eat a lot of dairy. In Europe, we eat more dairy than anywhere else in the world. In 2022, we ate a whopping 220 kilos of dairy per person per year. Oh. And that's about three times higher than the 70 kilo recommendation, right? Yeah, I really cannot emphasize enough how disproportionately huge the footprint of Europeans' diets are in comparison to the rest of the world. And despite that 70 kilo report, George says... If you say, actually, you know, we've got to do everything within our power to minimise all of those metrics, then you would end up eating no dairy at all. I completely understand that in some parts of the world, India in particular, as ultra-small scale dairy, which is essential to people's livelihoods. As a comfortable Western consumer, I don't think I have any justification to eat any dairy at all. And I mean, that's my position because I don't see dairy being compatible on any sort of scale with a habitable planet. Okay. I can see how listeners might feel disheartened and demotivated by this. But if I flip it, it also means there's this really obvious thing that we can do, especially as Europeans, that would seriously reduce our climate impact. And that feels really amazing, given how powerless climate change can make you feel. Ever the optimist, cats? <laughs> nice to know you found a silver lining to this cloud while I'm uh... just here planning my cheese funeral. As you plan this cheese funeral, let's go back to the plant-based milks and back to Oatly. Yes, please. I'm not sure I want to think about dairy farming for a good long while. So now that we've got all these options, like Oatly, what impact would it have to drastically reduce dairy? There was a really interesting study earlier this year, published in Nature, that was the first real rigorous meta-analysis comparing the impact of different diets. So they had high meat eaters, low meat eaters, pescatarians, vegetarians and vegans. And it compared the impact of these different diets in terms of things like their greenhouse gas emissions and how much water and land they use. And one of the most striking things for me was that there is a big difference in impact between people who eat loads of meat compared to people who don't eat much meat. And then there's a smaller difference between people who eat a little bit of meat and the vegetarians. And then there is another big leap between the vegetarians and the vegans. Oh, interesting. Vegetarianism doesn't make a lot of sense. It's definitely better not to be eating meat, but you are still going to be very heavily reliant on dairy and eggs. And dairy and eggs both have enormous problems. So what that breakdown shows, I think, is that cutting down on dairy, including eggs, really does matter. And cats, is there any big difference between the plant-based milks? Well, there was another study using the same data that compared cow, soy, rice, almond and oat milk. Huh, what did it say? So first I should mention that across all metrics, plant-based milks beat dairy. Sometimes by a long shot, like 90% less impact. Mm, that's pretty impressive. 
Now, between the plant-based milks, there are some differences. Almond, soy, I've even had potato milk, which is disgusting, I have to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> Does it taste like just oh, boiled God, it's, potato it's water? sweet and sickly and tacky. <laughs> it, oh, it's horrible, horrible. Um, coconut, of course. I mean, there's a whole range of them. You know, There's no such thing as a perfect product, right? Everything has got an impact. Nothing's perfect, but oat and soy come out as the big winners. Oat and soy milk emit three times less greenhouse gases and use 12 times less fresh water. Huh, okay. And like, what about in terms of it being a nutritional replacement for cow milk? I mean, this is something I'm thinking about a lot because I've just had a kid and here in Northern Europe, at least, we're always trying to stuff our children full of cow milk. Is plant-based milk like Oatly actually a viable replacement? It's true that in Europe we eat a lot of milk, especially when we're kids. Um, In large swathes of the world, especially in Hindu and Buddhist populations, people have been vegan for like hundreds of years. In Europe and the US, veganism is fairly niche, which means we also need a lot more time to study the long-term impacts on health. The main thing people talk about is protein, but in Europe, people are eating on average double the amount of protein recommended every day. Mm. Even the vegans are mostly well above meeting their daily needs. Vitamin B12 is an issue, but you can take supplements pretty easily. And of course, dairy also has a bunch of health concerns like cholesterol and cancer, but that is a different podcast. Back to Oatly's journey as a company. When we last left them, they had just been sued by Big Dairy and they'd lost. But the case also got them loads of publicity and lots of people were talking about all of these dairy problems. And there they were, ready with their replacement product. Around 17% of Europeans, for example, consume on a daily basis plant-based products. So this is definitely already an, an important number. This is Elsa Guadarrama from ProVid, which is an international NGO that advocates and researches plant-based diets. I mean, it's still a way to go with conventional traditional milk products but this is definitely here the moment in which we are reaching mainstream area if you think about like the public discourse and also just walking around the supermarket there's been a huge increase in plant-based options over the past few years so regardless of what you think of them and i get the impression that the rest of this mini series isn't going to be like super rosy about oatly The Oatly boom was nonetheless pretty important for helping to put a conversation about dairy on the map. Right. And given all the problems with dairy that we just learned about, thanks to your miserable montage, um, (laughs) that seems like it's actually really important. Yeah, especially because, and this might surprise you, our dairy consumption in Europe is still going up every year. Ah. Really? Yeah. Another sprinkling of bad cheese news is... Quite enough of that, thank you. It takes like 10 litres of milk to make one kilo of cheese. So even though we are drinking less like glasses of milk, we're still going up in dairy. Oh no. And a lot of people I spoke to said, you know, it's because all of these people are replacing meat with cheese. But what blew my mind is that meat is also increasing. How is that possible? I feel like there's so many people in my life, at least, who are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm cutting down on meat. That seems crazy. Part of the problem is actually the EU. The short version is it's really super complicated. The European subsidy system is is one of the greatest causes of environmental destruction on Earth. It's an absolute catastrophe, the common agricultural policy. 
On the one hand, you have the Green Deal, this package of EU climate policies that actually says plant-based diets are an important part of meeting our climate goals. But then you look at the EU's subsidy system. All over Europe, this massive perverse incentive, and it's a huge amount of money spent every year on these subsidies, demands that those wildlife habitats are eliminated. It is supporting this entire industrial dairy system at the behest of these very powerful dairy lobbies. Here's journalist Sonali again. The EU is doing two different things. It's both protecting conventional dairy agriculture and also providing some incentives for alternative dairy. It's just we're in different ballparks. Hundreds of billion for subsidies for dairy and, you know, a few hundred million for the entire alt protein industry. And there's still an EU law, right, that says that companies can't sell oat milk or soy yogurt as oat milk or soy yogurt, which is totally insane. And all of this power affects the price of cow milk. It's why it's so cheap. And it affects policy. There was also that story that we talked about on the show fairly recently about the dairy lobby successfully blocking a move to make plant-based milk available in schools, especially for kids with allergies to cow milk. Because of the influence of the livestock lobby, which is a very powerful lobby across the world, but you know, especially in Europe, you've got all this advertising. It's as if they were publicly funded advertising saying burn coal. You know, that's how perverse it is. This is taxpayers' money. People living within the EU are funding this and these advertising campaigns to get people to eat more of the most damaging products of all. So in the face of the almighty dairy industry, in comes Oatly. Here's Oatly's Ashley Allen again. We really see that in order to have the influence that we want on the food system, we have to grow. We have to be able to provide more products for more people and really put products and options out there for people for the plant-based movement to grow. Along the way, Oatly has made some pretty unpopular corporate decisions. Decisions connected to global finance, the massive housing crisis around the world, the Chinese state. And that is exactly where we're going to go next week. Join us next week for part two of the Oatly Chronicles as we try to answer the question... Will green capitalism save the planet? This episode was reported, written and produced by me, Kat Slaslo. Editing came from Katie Lee, as well as the wonderful Justine Paradise visiting from NPR's excellent podcast, Outside In. Editorial support came from Dominic Kramer and Wojciech Oleksiak, and mastering and sound design also came from Wojciech. Special thanks to my lovely neighbours Joris Klinger and Thomas van Dijk for letting me use their very nice studio. You can find their music under Bovenbure. There'll be a link in the show notes. And of course, thank you to George Monbio, Finlay Wynn, Elsa Guadarrama, Sonali Figueras, Ashley Allen and Sofia Edler for talking to us. Finally, none of this would have been possible without the generous funding of journalismfund.eu, Alliance Foundation, and of course, our lovely Patreon supporters. Thank you for keeping one of the only independent podcasts about Europe going. See you next week.